We'll turn this evening to the Psalms and to the 14th Psalm, Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and call not upon the Lord? There were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. You have shamed the counsel of the poor, because the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion, when the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people. Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. Amen. Thank the Lord again for this reading of his word. Let's bow our heads again in prayer. Our Father, as we open the scriptures this evening, we pray that thou wilt direct our thoughts, Lord, that thou wilt direct our meditation. We pray, Father, that those things which thou would set before us tonight might be a blessing to our souls that they might be enlightening to us also and we pray our father that we might be ready for the onslaughts which surround us as they eat up by people as they eat bread lord we pray that we might stand and having done all to stand lord that we also might go forward in the name of the lord jesus christ and that we might see the salvation of the lord around us lord bless us we ask thee and help us and strengthen us for the present day. And Lord, we pray that we might be found uh, worthy of thee in as much as we have done all that we could. And Lord, thou hast asked no more of us. And Lord, we pray that we might strive for masteries through the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God, that we might keep our bodies under subjection and that we might so use them in the service of the Most High God. Lord, bless us, we pray thee then, and continue with us now. Receive our praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to think upon the first three verses here, really, of this psalm, uh, which we read in this way. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Many of these words were taken up by the Apostle Paul when in Romans chapter 3 he spoke about the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ and showed that all men were sinners, both Jew and Gentile alike. There were none that sought after God. And this, therefore, are the words which begin. This uh, gives it a kind of a universality over all of us, not just uh, those who, uh, who we might look upon as atheists in this world, but all men can be brought in under the words of the psalmist here. That the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Uh, the fool is not someone uh, who is necessarily stupid. Uh, it uh, may have had that connotation in the past. But the fool is someone who does something which is foolish or believes something 
which is foolish, something which uh, cannot be justified uh, logically or uh, that can be justified spiritually. And of course, the, the, the world is in such a condition and in such a state. So I want to think about atheism in particular here this evening, uh, not just of those who are called atheists, but atheists, atheism, uh, which is, of course, the um, negation of a belief in God. It is uh, both the, the thought that there is no God at all, and there is also the thought that, well, even though we're told there is a God, and we kind of believe that there is a God, yet we live our lives as though there is no God, uh, which is a practical atheism. Both of those things are contained here in these words. So I want to think under, under three heads, as we usually do. First of all, the infection of atheism. Secondly, the implications of atheism. And thirdly, the indefensibility of atheism. The infection of atheism. Of course, the infection of atheism begins right at the beginning of the scriptures and of the world. When God created Adam and Eve, they actually knew that there was a God because they had spoken to that God. And they acknowledged and knew that there was a God. And indeed, when we read those passages of scripture from the beginning of Genesis, they aspired to be like God. One of the temptations or trials or tests set before them, uh, the beguilements of the wicked one, was that ye can be as God, knowing good and evil. Uh, so he even acknowledged that there was a God to them. He wasn't teaching them that there was no God. That would be foolish because they knew uh, for certainty that there was a God. But nevertheless, he said, but you can be like God. And so from the very beginning, there was this infection of atheism in the fact that they accepted there was a God, but they didn't accept his godliness. They didn't accept that his divine authority and when we look at the scriptures and as we consider even from a logical point of view uh, God who created all things and from whom all things uh, uh, come forth is a perfect God uh, and uh, therefore his authority is a perfect authority and not only so but he created the heavens and he created the earth and he created us at least he created our forefathers uh, in Adam and Eve and therefore, he has the right over us, just as if we create something, we say, well, that's mine. I made it. I built it. It belongs to me. And God has that right also. And yet, we see that in the infection of this atheism, Adam and Eve did not, did not trust in the divine authority of God, but they listened to the words of the wicked one, of the serpent, who came before them and said, ye shall not surely die. And God, had, of course, said to them, ye shall surely die. If he, they had accepted his divine authority, then they would have said to the servant immediately, but God says that we will surely die, and therefore, because he is sovereign, and because he is God, and because he knows all things, he must be true, and you must be lying. But they didn't say that. Because although they knew that God was there, they did not accept his divine authority. And that really is the big problem in humanity unto this day. Uh, we don't accept the authority of God. We don't accept that God is the one who has uh, ultimate control over us. That he is the ultimate judge 
of all that we do. He is the judge of all the earth. And the, the things that we do, we make excuses for them, and we accept our excuses rather than God's word. How we take his position, isn't it? So, from the very beginning, that man has desired and still does desire to be God. What we see in this day and age, certainly in this land, uh, is this um, kind of a doctrine that the world created itself. There was a kind of a spontaneous existence which came from who knows where, and it has evolved through the uh, through the aeons from the 4.6 billion years of this particular solar system and the 13 or 14 billion years uh, we are told that the that the um, universe has existed since the big bang although the big bang itself is disputed now uh, but nevertheless uh, in all of that time we came from this infinitesimal spot somewhere that it expanded into what we see now as the universe that which is observable to us of the universe and out of that universe there came us by a form of um, abiogenesis is the term which is that chemicals became alive uh, no explanation really uh, covers that because it's not been done uh, and so there's no empirical evidence that that can happen. But theoretically, they have said, well, uh, the chemicals came together in such a way that life spontaneously began and that it began to evolve and uh, came into celled creatures and then multi-celled creatures and slowly uh, through the ages of this uh, planet, uh, we have evolved to what we are now. And what are we now? Well, we are intelligence. So we can say of the universe because we are a part of the universe, that the universe itself has intelligence. It has us. There is no other intelligence that we know of in the universe. So if we are the highest intelligence in the universe, what have we become? We have become the ultimate authority. We have become the God which Satan promised that we would become, except that we are not actually God. But we are duped into thinking that we have that ultimate authority in the universe. The universe has come to a point where it can manipulate itself, where it can think for itself. We are the brain of it, and therefore we have become God. But it is a delusion. I read a, a book uh, written called The God Delusion. Well, it's not the God Delusion. The God Delusion is not that there is no God, uh, which was the premise of the book. The God delusion is that we are God. That's the delusion. That we are the ones who are the authority of the universe. We are the ones who can manipulate the very cells of the body. That we are the ones that can clone other creatures. And even uh, the thought is that we can clone ourselves one day. That we are the ones that can extend life. That we are the ones who can, after death, bring people back again. And some people, of course, pay vast amounts of money to be cryogenically stored that they might be brought back sometime in the future and might live in a future time. All of these thoughts are that man is capable of doing those things. That's the delusion. The God delusion is that we are God. 
And of course, we don't accept, and men don't accept, and they won't say to them, say to us, "Yes, we believe we are God." They won't say that. But that is that is where it all comes up to in the end, when we consider it. If we are the highest intelligence, if we are the intelligence of the universe, then we are the God of the universe. We are the greatest creatures of the universe. Man loves to think so, and that infection of atheism has come upon this world. And it has persisted in this world. The psalmist says here, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. And here is the problem. It is this fallen heart. It is the fact that in our heart, we believe this. In our heart. Now, in our intellect, uh, we may say, well, we're obviously not God. And that's why no one claims to be so. Well, some have indeed claimed to be so in a kind of a pantheistic uh, kind of way. I uh, hear of uh, persons in the past who have called themselves God uh, in a kind of a new age way. Uh, they have said that they were God. John Denver, I think, was one person who said that. Uh, Mia Farrow, I, see, I seem to remember, said something similar, uh, that, that she was God. I'm not quite sure on what, uh, on what um, level she was thinking of that. But there are those who have even come to say such a thing as that. But it's persisted throughout the ages. It's not a new thing. It was there in the Garden of Eden. It has come through to this day. And it has kind of grown as, as more and more um, arguments, rhetoric, not actual logical arguments, but rhetoric has been piled on to confuse the mind so that we come to believe that which is unbelievable. And it persisted, persists to this day. Not only is it persistent, but is also pervasive uh, from the wicked uh, that would be considered even wicked by the world, uh, the, the killers and the murderers and so on uh, of the world, uh, and uh, the wicked uh, themselves, even up to those who profess to be saints, and indeed those who are saints on occasions also fall to the pervasiveness of an atheism, a practical atheism. It's not that we say, well, we don't believe that there's a God. It's not that we uh, actually would argue that there is no God. But we do things still as if there is no God. As if God doesn't see us. Uh, as if there, in some way we can say, well, we're, we're hidden away in such a way that God won't, won't notice what we're doing. There is no fear of God before our eyes. Not at all, at all times, but on occasions, even in the child of God. There can be this falling away into this delusion that God doesn't see us. And that, well, it'll be all right in the end anyway. There's this pervasive atheism which comes into the heart. In Titus 1 verse 16, the Apostle Paul writes these things. He says, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work, reprobate, being abominable and disobedient. Uh, we see this a lot in, 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 the, in the religious circles in these days, where people say, yeah, I believe in God, but they don't obey the word. In fact, they're not even interested in listening to the word, or reading the word, or hearing what God says. It used to be something uh, which was common, that people didn't want to hear the word, because they would say... If I don't know, God can't judge me for it. 
If I don't know what the Bible says, I can stay before God. So I didn't know that. Without even considering the fact that God will then say, well, why didn't you know that? I wrote it. I gave it to you and you had access to it. And so there is this pervasiveness even in those who profess that they know God. But still in works they deny him. And there are many, of course, in churches in this country and across the world who deny the scriptures, who don't live by the scriptures, who say that parts of the scriptures uh, apply to us and other parts don't. There's that kind of an idea that the scriptures contain the word of God, but they are not the word of God. That there are many scribes and people who have written and they have come back afterwards and they have changed things and, uh, and they have brought it up to date with what they now know. And there's all these different kinds of arguments. And they say, but the word of God is there somewhere. But of course, nobody knows where it is and which words are the words of God. And therefore, we, 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 will, we will make our, our version of Christianity. And there are so many versions of Christianity. Oh, the devil's been busy. And people say, well, Christianity can't be true because look at the amount of churches there are. Uh, someone, once I was, uh, I, I was reading, was saying, well, 10,000 different denominations. I would like to see them listed. Uh, I'm not sure that there's 10,000 10, different ways of actually writing Christian uh, or, or adding words to it. I know there's lots of churches called all kinds of things these days. Um, the, the, the church of God and the church of the world and the church of the, uh, of the people of God and all kinds of different words which you see on, sometimes on church uh, notice boards. Uh, not just simply the Church of England or the Church of Rome or the Baptists or the Methodists, but so many different ways of explaining what church this is uh, that everybody's confused as to, well, what do you actually believe? And do you believe the same as them? Oh, the devil has got in with his confusion. That is for sure. But it is pervasive in this. In 2 Timothy 3, and chapter, uh, in chapter 3 and verses 1 to 5, the apostle says here, as we've read it earlier, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. No, we're in perilous times in this land. Uh, these last days i think the last days uh, can be argued to be the whole time between the coming of the lord jesus and the return of the lord jesus uh, just simply because john writes about there will be antichrist and even now antichrist uh, is amongst us uh, and he was writing that of course while he was still alive in the first century so here the apostle says this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come for men shall be lovers of their own selves. Well, there are certainly a lot of that in this day and age, where men are lovers of them, their own selves, put themselves out there as, as being something. And uh, there's been some um, complaint, hasn't there, about the Oscars this year and everybody moralizing and telling everybody what they think. And uh, they're actors and actresses. And their profession is to make lies believable that's what the job of an actor and actress is isn't it you take a fiction which is not true and you make everybody believe it and then they stand and tell us what we should all believe but it says they shall be lovers of their own selves covetous boasters proud blasphemers disobedient to parents unthankful unholy without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, 
incontinent, that is, without self-control, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of God. And then note this word, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such, Paul says, turn away. Lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of God. And of course, that is where the pleasures of the flesh come in, even into the church, that we might delight in the things that are done within the church, rather than coming to hear what God will say to us and to humble ourselves in his presence. It is pervasive. This is the infection of atheism. Not the atheism which is out there as almost evangelical, if you can use that word, uh, the message of atheism, but the atheism which exists within our hearts. That even when we believe in God, sometimes we're not believing in God. Brian used to call uh, such as uh, unbelieving believers. And then we see also its potency. The potency of this infection of atheism, first of all, is to damn the natural man. It is to take the natural man to the grave and then to the second death. To stand before the judgment of God and to be cast out into outer darkness because they have never known the light. And the outer darkness is their natural habitat. And that is exactly where they will go. There is no fear of God. There is no belief in God. There is no service for God. There is no love for God. There is no desire for God. And if there is none of those things, then God says, well, you don't want to be with me. I have a place for you where you can live the way you've lived and where you can continue on in your unbelief. Only it won't be an unbelief because all the delusions will have been gone. And all that comes to light from our own minds now that we know that God is there and is the judge of all. And then also its potency is to be found in his disabling of the spiritual man. Now, because even though we may know the Lord Jesus Christ, we may have been cleansed and justified by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, yet nevertheless, we can be disabled because we're not trusting in Christ, because we're not casting out all upon Christ. And there are times when we can go through times of doubt and doubt, times of fear and, and, and times of, of just withdrawing into our shell. Times of backsliding also and going back into the things of the world, though it may be for a time, but in all of this it disables us. We're not about the service of God, but we're about our service of ourselves. In Psalm 77, we read from verse 7, Will the Lord cast off forever? Will he be favourable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Doth his promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? These are the words of the psalmist as he considers his own heart and as he considers the, the fears and the anxieties which come upon his mind. But then he continues in the very next verse and said, And I said, This is my infirmity. But I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. Sometimes we have to lift ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and we have to uh, understand and see what God has done for us in the past. 
The hymn writer puts it as count your many blessings. Name them one by one and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. So often we forget the blessings of God and our present circumstances are all that fill our minds. And we continue on in in our sin. We continue on in our unbelief. We continue on in our waywardness because of this latent but potent atheism of the heart a practical atheism that God doesn't care that God will not judge me that God will be alright with what I'm doing and we go on from the infection then of atheism to the implications of atheism the implications of atheism first of all we could say are apostasy apostasy In Isaiah 29 and verse 13, God says of his people in Israel at that time, Wherefore, the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Now there is a natural fear of God. There is a a, a fear, a terror of God. I say a natural one. It is one which is uh, lighted in our hearts by the Spirit of God. That we fear God. And even in the midst of sin, though we might seek to press down the the pricks, as it is spoken of, as as, um, the Lord speaks to Paul and said, it is hard for thee to to, uh, resist the pricks. Uh, those goads which are pushing you towards me, you have been resisting them. And even though we may come to uh, that position, yet still in the back of our minds there is a fear of God. We know that we will stand before God. We know that he sees us. We know that he will judge us. We know that if we continue down a path of, of, of sin, which God has forbidden us to walk on, the time will come when God will Deal with us if we are his. And the deeper fear still which, which exists in the child of God is that if God doesn't deal with us, it is because we are not his. And that's even worse. That's even more terrifying. That one day we will stand in the presence of God and say to him, Lord, Lord, and he will say, I never knew you. That's the fear of God. But what is being spoken here in Isaiah is that their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. That is, we have been told that we should fear God. And it can happen, of course, amongst children. As one of the things why I think so many atheists of this day and age and uh, so many uh, um, opponents of the gospel come from the Roman Catholic Church is because they had been to schools where the nuns had taught them all about the fear of God But it wasn't a real fear. It wasn't the actual fear of the child of God. It was the fear of what the nuns had told them. And what had been pressed into their minds about God was going to do this and God was going to do that. And it was taught by the precept of men. It wasn't a real fear fear of God. It was just a precept. And the Lord says, well, they draw near to me with their mouth. So they say that they are mine. They come to the temple. They go to the sacrifices They go through all the rules and the rites and the rituals and they do those things because they've been taught to do them. But they don't know me. They don't love me. They don't desire me. They don't speak to me. They don't follow me. In fact, they follow their own gods. 
And they speak to each other of those, of those things, but they have no fear and no love of me. It's just something which has been taught to them. And of course, when the Lord Jesus came into the world, that was exactly what he found there. And he said, if you knew my father, you would know me also. But you didn't know my father, because the things that you do, you Pharisees, and those who have followed the teachings of the Pharisees, are works which you think are works of righteousness, which you think in somehow please God. But God is not pleased with things that you do. God is pleased with your heart. My son, give me your heart. The implications of atheism then are an apostasy, that is to leave God and just slowly to drift off away from God because you never knew him. But you thought you did. In Romans 1 verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Here is an apostasy of well. This is the implication of atheism. We don't want to think upon God. We don't want to mention his name. I've spoken to people in the past who have professed that they, that they were Christians. Now, they don't go to church anywhere because, well, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian, do you? This is the argument. Uh, but they, they know him upstairs. Not the Lord, not their saviour, just him upstairs. And there is this delusion that, that God is with them. And there is no love for him, no desire after him. No desire after his people or to be a part of the family of his people. But just live life and say, well, I believe in God. When I get into trouble, I might pray. The Lord, again, in Matthew 23, in verse 27, says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed, indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Oh, looks good on the outside, but your heart is far from me. This is the apostasy. This is a falling away. This is the turning uh, uh, those things which could be to our salvation into that which is just the facade. And then the implications of atheism are iniquity. Again, from Titus 1.16, the same verse, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate the idea of reprobate is um, the scum which which will form on the surface of a metal which has been melted down so if you melt down aluminium or silver or uh, some other uh, metal you'll get a scum which floats on the top it is the impurities that is the the reprobate they become that the impurity which floats upon the top there is nothing genuine about them and the iniquity is the work of their hands. And then we can say the implications of atheism are despair. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says to them, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. And that is true across the board, although that's not quite the context in which this word, these words are given in the scripture. 
it is still true across all men. If, if we have a hope in Christ, if, if someone says, well, I'm a Christian, I'm, I, believe that, I, I believe in Jesus, and then when they actually come and stand before Jesus, Jesus says, but I never knew you, depart from me, they are the most miserable people in the earth. At least someone who is outwardly atheistic can, can, can say, well, I don't believe I'm going to heaven. They don't believe they're going to hell either, but, but that's, at least they'd make that statement. They have no desire after God. I don't want a God. I don't want to know about God. And they've at least made that statement. But how much worse would it be for someone who has said, well, I believe in Jesus and Jesus is going to save me. But they've never spoken to him. Never repented of their sins. Never known the fear of God. It's all just words. The despair which follows from the implications of atheism. And then, of course, perdition itself. Psalm 9, verse 17, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Oh, this is a nation that's forgotten God. Oh, there are lots of other gods about in this nation in these days, gods from all the nations under the sun uh, which have come into this land in these days. But the God who created us is not known. And perdition is the result. And then we come finally to the indefensibility of atheism. Now it's indefensible because of atrophy and entropy for a start. What is atrophy? Well, it's where things break down, where things corrupt. And we see all around us that everything corrupts. Everything breaks down. When we think of, uh, of atrophy, usually we're thinking about uh, biological uh, kind of things and uh, we can say well if you leave an apple for long enough it will it will break down i suppose there are some things which don't break down uh, mcdonald's burgers so i'm told uh, you can keep for years and years and years and they won't break down uh, but uh, they've got preservatives in them but eventually everything breaks down and this kind of an atrophy shows us that well we don't get better over time we get worse over time we don't evolve from a microbe to a man we are more likely to devolve from a man to a microbe. We don't become men from apes. We are more likely to become apes from men. And there are some who would say, well, there's a lot of apes among men. And the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And because of atrophy, therefore, we can say, well, there must have been at some point that which was perfect, which is slowly breaking down, because that's what we see all around us. And then entropy, uh, which is uh, a more fundamental breaking down, even down to the, the elemental level of atoms and the like. Uh, entropy, uh, the, the, the teaching of that is that eventually everything will come down to, a, to a, a, a flat equilibrium across the universe. There will be no more action at all. There will be no light there will be no movement of atoms or electrons or anything. Eventually, at some point, it will all flatten out. So where did we come from then? If all that we see is that everything goes bad and everything slows down and everything gets destroyed and everything is broken, why on earth do men teach and believe that everything began in that state and has become what it is now? It doesn't make sense. 
In Job 14, verse 11, just as an instance, uh, there we read, as the waters fail from the sea, and the flood decayeth and drieth up, so man lieth down and riseth not, till the heavens be no more, they shall not awake, nor be raised out of their sleep. And again, in verse 18 of that same chapter, and surely the mountain falling cometh to naught, and the rock is removed out of his place, and the waters wear the stones, Thou washest away the things which grow out of the dust of the earth, and thou destroyest the hope of man. Everything is tending to a breakdown, to destruction, not to getting better. And then we could say the indefensibility of atheism is because of apostasy itself. In Acts chapter 7 and verse 40, there is a reference to the children of Israel while Moses was up in the mount, and they said to Aaron up, Make us gods to go before us. For as for this Moses which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we wot not, or we know not what is become of him. Up, make us gods. And man makes himself gods. Why? Why do we make ourselves gods? Why do we have to have some kind of a god? Not always called god, of course. Uh, men like not to use the word god, but nevertheless... There is something they look to. If you read the rhetoric of those who speak about science, science has become a god. Because they will say, well, science tells us. And according to science, well, what is science? Science has become something. It has been personified. It is turned into some great oracle which in instructs us in all things. And that if we can't explain something by science then we must be wrong. If we don't have a, an empirical argument, a scientific argument, then we can't be right. And so science itself has become a god for men, and men worship science. Of course, they don't say they worship science, and they don't call science a god. But nevertheless, that's where their trust is. That's where their hope is. That's where their faith is. In science. But science simply means knowledge. And knowledge resides in the minds of men. And it comes back to the fact that man thinks himself a god. And then our knowledge is our salvation. And what men have known and what men have discovered and what men have thought and what men have philosophized. That is what we need but not the god of heaven. So when we think about this we are thinking about men making gods Gods in their own image. Gods in their own image. Psalm 115 and verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the works of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them, so is everyone that trusteth in them. Now there's a statement, they that make them are like unto them. And we kind of think of that, that they have made the idol. And what the psalmist is saying is that when they make the idol, they become like the idol. But actually, when you think about it, the idol is made in their image. They are like the idol because the idol is the image of themselves. They are again worshipping themselves. 
Man loves to worship himself. And indeed, our greatest problem with God is the fact that God gives us commands that we ourselves don't like. And we want to make our own decisions. And we want to decide what's good for us. And we want to decide what the future may hold. And we want to decide whether there's a heaven or whether there's a hell. Whereas the fact is that objectively God is there. God says there is a heaven to be gained and a hell to be feared and shunned. And whatever men think will make no difference to it whatsoever. Because of atheism then, that the false gods are like the people who invented them. But the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God who reveals himself in the scripture is not like unto us. He is not like unto us. Not to say that he is not like unto us in any form because he created us in his image. We are like unto him. Because he created us. And those who make the idols have created the idols and they are like unto them. But God created us, we are like unto him. But he is not like unto us in our sin. He is not like unto us in our corruptions. In Psalm 50 and verse 21, it's really telling words. These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself. But I will reprove thee and set them in order before thine eyes. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself. You see, the gods that man makes for himself are those who are like themselves. And God says to them, well, you think that I'm like you, but I'm not like you. And I will judge you and I will reprove you. And that's the whole reason why man doesn't want to have God, because they don't want God judging them. We don't like being judged, do we? None of us like being judged. We come across someone who we think is judgy. We don't like that. We don't want to be told what to do. We don't want to be told that we're wrong. We don't want to be told that we could do better. We all like to think that we have got it right and that we're the best that we can be. And the psalmist says in Psalm 130 and verse 3, If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? Malachi 3, 2, But who may abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. Revelation six seventeen, For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? O man, in his atheism, whether it's overt or whether it's covert, whether it's a philosophical atheism or whether it's just simply a practical atheism, will stand before the God who will judge us according to righteousness and according to his own purposes and none will be able to argue with him and no one will be able to overcome him and everyone will go to their long home, whatever that is, whether it is heaven in the presence of God because we delight in his presence or hell as far away from God as we can possibly get because we hate his presence, those things will come to be 
because for all of the arguments and the rhetoric that man brings to negate the existence of God, God exists nevertheless and will judge.